Good morning. How's everyone doing? Good. If you don't know me, my name's Eric, and I'd love to get to know you or answer any questions you might have after the service uh, out in the welcome area. I want to welcome our friends and family online as well. We're so glad you join us. Um, if you're able to, after the service, we are going to have baptisms. Usually when you see this front area full, it means there's baptism. So um, we encourage you to stick around after the service and just celebrate uh, the public commitment to follow Jesus and honor that. Um, in first service, just to kind of, so everyone knows what's going on, we had the great joy of doing a baby dedication uh, with Emery, who is the baby of Nathan and Shannon, two of our missionaries. And so uh, we uh, commissioned that they would raise her according to God's word and uh, to love and know and follow Jesus, like in Deuteronomy 6. And so just keep them in your prayers, uh, because part of uh, a child dedication, it's really a parent dedication. It's the parents dedicating to raise the child. And it's, it's hard raising kids, isn't it? Okay. And it's hard to do that with all of these believers. Okay. And I want you to think that they're going to do that in a country with no believers, no Christians. And they're going to have them and one other family. There's no church. There's no spoken, you know, gospel language. They're going to do that for the better part of 20 years trying to translate a Bible and trying to... Um, disciple and evangelize and, and have a church. And so what a great task to take on. True? So keep them in your prayers and uh, just be ever mindful of that. The second part of that, it's kind of the introduction to my sermon is, you know, we're going we're gonna to look through Matthew and right here in chapter four, you're going to see this, you know, follow me. And there's just this immediate following from the disciples. And I think sometimes that can seem... Uh, ethereal or just like so far removed from our culture. Um, but when we bring up missionaries, you kind of get a tangible look at what it means that, you know, Jesus was so great in the New Testament that they gave up their jobs and they followed him. He is still great now. He is so great now that people give up everything and still follow him. And you get to see that in a missionary raising their kid in a country uh, that has no Jesus and has no church. What a great reminder, Amen. Okay, let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you and we thank you. Uh, what a privilege it is to follow you and love you and have you as a savior. Um, it's my great prayer that we would uh, just walk through this text and see your beauty, your majesty, and that you're worth giving up everything for. You're worth following. You're greater than anything or anyone we could hold on to. It's my prayer that we would just love you more through this passage, that you would preach and I wouldn't. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, good. So here we are. We're Matthew chapter 4. We're on the second half, and we're getting ready to launch into the Sermon on the Mount. So before Jesus gets into probably the biggest chunk of preaching he does, I want you to see how Matthew is setting this up. It's important you follow the logic and the process and the narrative, right? So he starts off in chapter 1. There is a lineage, right? A family tree for the Savior, the King that is to come. Jesus meets those requirements. Two, he is led to, or Gentiles, wise men, are led to him through light. They see him. They worship him. All the geography of the Old Testament, he's being called out of Egypt, right? That's where they went. He's gone to Nazareth. And now he's going to Galilee. All of these places Old Testament's pointing to. He has been anointed. God has spoken. This is my son. He's survived the wilderness test as Moses failed. 
Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. So he's been tested and he's true. And then now this last part is he's going to have also the authority. He has the authority, he has the resume, he has the anointing, and he's passed the test. So all of that is he is who he says he is. So you need to listen to what he's about to say all through chapter five in the Sermon on the Mount, chapter seven, because it's gonna change the way everything is done. It's gonna radically change you. So you need to know this man has the power, authority, anointing, history, and he's passed the test. His character and obedience are perfect. So that's how Matthew sets this up. And it starts off with, now let's see, where does he go? It says, Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy by going to, verse 15, where? To Galilee. And it's the Galilee of Gentiles, verse 16. It's people living in darkness in the shadow of death. And it says that light has dawned in that darkness. And so what you see is very, very interesting. I want you to catch this. You see in the very beginning, Gentiles, wise men are coming to Jesus. They're worshiping him before any of the Jews. Jesus is being worshiped by Gentiles. Now he is going to a Gentile city and he's going in that darkness proclaiming to them. And then at the end of the book of Matthew, he sends the disciples out to where? The nations, the Gentiles. And so he's making a huge point here where Israel has failed Jesus is succeeding. Jesus is going to the original plan that Christ would be preached and offered a Messiah, right? A lamb to take away the sins of the world would be offered everywhere. And what you see over and over again is Israel in the Old Testament rebels against that calling. Just read the book of Jonah. It summarizes it really well. It's like, hey, Jonah, I want you to go to these Gentiles and I want you to call them into repentance. He's like, no, they're pagans. They don't love them. They don't care about them. And God's dealing with him and dealing with him and dealing with him till finally he goes. And then Jonah is mad and he has to deal with him again. So it's not by accident that Jesus is going into a dark place to the Gentiles to offer salvation, which Israel wouldn't do in their hard hearts. Okay? You can pick this up, Isaiah 49.6. I just want you to see this. It says, he says, it is to light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. So he's saying, hey, you Israel, I will make you a light as for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of all the earth. So it's very clear, Israel is supposed to do this. So Jesus now, fulfilling the scripture, has gone to Galilee. Galilee is this little far off remote kind of city 15,000 people. It's settled in kind of the U-shape, kind of like Bakersfield, of, of, of mountains. It's about 15,000 people. And it's just full of pagans, full of Assyrians that were left over that worshiped many gods and many things. And Jesus walks in and it says the light dawned. That literally means boom, light was created. Light was there for the very first time. I know it probably doesn't happen in your guys' houses, but you've been in places that it was dark and maybe you turn on the light and all the bugs go, and they scatter, right? Not your house, just someone's house, right? So you think through, that's like the light, boom, the darkness scatters. That's the power of light. And so as we walk through that imagery, it's important that we see that light serves a purpose of removing darkness. However, what you're gonna see in the gospels, there's two responses. Jesus goes and he preaches that he's light. He's exposing, right, the bugs, the sin. They either scatter because they want to remain hidden. 
They don't want to change their sin. They don't want to give it up. Or they rejoice. It says that the blind can now see, that the lame can now walk. It's talking spiritually. There's this rejoicing that for the first time, for the first time, maybe they feel love. For the first time, they feel like they know what's going on in life. Because before they're just wandering around, ramming their heads into a wall, constantly being hurt because pure darkness hides. It isolates. What happens when you stay in darkness long enough, you get this numbing effect. You can't even feel the pain. You just keep walking in it, not realizing all the pain it has. I don't know if you guys have ever been in pure darkness. Uh, one of the closer times for me. I don't know if you've ever been to Hume Lake. I was there my first year as the high school pastor. And um, Wildwood is it's a high school camp. It's at the top of the mountain. And uh, one of the kids needed some medicine. And, you know, good old church suburbans, they work half the time, right? So um, I had to drive down the hill to get it. Now, this is important for you to know, okay? Um, I've told you guys many times, I have one gift. It's right here. Anything outside of that, who knows, anything could happen, right? I can't fix things. I can't sell things. I can't invent things. So this might have been an easy problem for you to fix, but the lights just stopped working, okay? And I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm like, well, I got to get this kid medicine, and I'm in this like 1990 church suburban. It's a tank. It should get me there, right? And so I'm driving down and all of a sudden, boom, boom, I'm just going down a dirt road. And I'm like, man, Hume Lake can't even pave the roads. This is terrible. If you've been there, they have paved roads, right? And so I'm just on a bad trail and I don't know it. I'm kind of just dodging and praying and like swerving. I don't know how I died. I didn't die. So I get all the way down to the bottom. I was like, whoa, what was that? So then the next day, the light's on. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I should have died. It's just trees. It's just straight trees, and somehow I navigated all the way down through it. And it was like, oh my gosh, when the light is on, what was I thinking? Should have walked down, right? Here's the point. The light reveals everything that was going on. But when you're in darkness, you don't know better. You can't see. You have no clue what you're going through. You just know, maybe that's weird. That's odd. And and you get to a place, and you're like, how did I get here? And then all of a sudden, the light comes out. Oh, wow. The light is revealing. So this is what Jesus does. He comes and he reveals, you know what? You need to change. You need to turn away from what you're doing. You need to be in the light. See, in a lot of ways, we fear light because by nature, it exposes what's happening. And this is the temptation in in church. As Christians, they want to hide their sin. They don't want the light to shine on it because the thought is, if you really knew me, you could never really love me. There's this dichotomy between knowledge and love. And see, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to say, I know you perfectly, and yet I will love you completely. You need to let the light expose that and follow me. You need to repent, turn from that sin, follow me, walk in the light. This is why sometimes people run from church, they run from Jesus, they run from reading their Bible, they run from praying because they don't want to be brought into the light and deal with the sin that is inside of them. It's the same with people who aren't Christians. They don't want that conversation. They don't want that because they don't want to change. They don't want to give up their addiction. They don't want to give it up because it makes them feel whole. It's their medicine. It's their darkness. See, they're in the darkness. They don't know that they're running their head into a wall. They just know it temporarily makes them forget, that it temporarily makes them feel better. But you in the light see, why are you doing this? This is why when you're in churches, sometimes you'll see people just walk forward and they're weeping. Why are they crying? Because they finally exposed their sin. 
And there's another Christian saying, I love you. Christ died for you. And it's one of the most purest forms in all their life. Why? Because they're truly known and they are truly loved. This is what Jesus is coming to offer. But the emotion of it is scary. If you knew this, my thoughts, my selfishness, my pride, my impatience, my anger, my lust. If you knew this, there's no way you could love me. There's no way you would want to be friends with me. There's no way. So you hide in the darkness. You stay in the darkness. And this is what Jesus comes to change that narrative. Now, the opposite effect of this you're going to see with the Jews is they are a false light hanging around light. They have no desire to go to the darkness, not realizing they themselves are dark. Because over and over again, what you're going to see is this choice between loving what Jesus can do for you and loving Jesus himself, loving being in the light. As you walk through this, uh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. If you look in 25, it says, and great crowds followed him. There's always going to be some in the crowd that want the benefits of Christ without the relationship of Christ. Because in the relationship, things get exposed. But in the benefits, it's like, heal me, love me, bless me. But in the relationship, it's follow me, be like me, give up everything, love me completely. And that's this tension you see over and over and over again. A couple questions before we go to our next transition here is if you think of light and darkness, are you a light that only hangs out with other lights? Because you're missing the call of what God has called you to. This is the problem with Israel. They didn't want to go to the darkness. Has he changed you and you don't want to offer that to anyone? Jesus fundamentally turns that upside down, goes directly to the Gentiles, sends out the disciples to the Gentiles, and says, no, this is available to everyone. Light is not meant to hang out with light exclusively. New Testament model, right? The light gathers. It's a great light. You can see from a hill, the church, the saints, they gather. It's a glorious light because they're hearing God's word. They're singing to God. It's the closest thing to heaven you'll ever experience is being around God's people and fellowship with God. And then you get sent out into that darkness. Second thing is, let's say you are going to darkness. Is, is the darkness causing you to cover your light? Or are you exposing the darkness? There's this great shift. Think through it this way. If there's five of them and one of you, five non-Christians, one, are you constantly trying to dim that light so they don't think you're crazy? Dim down what Jesus says, change the Bible, leave things out so you can blend in and they won't think you're crazy and weird. If that's happening, you're not being a light in a dark place. You're being dark in a dark place. So what's maybe the recommendation? You don't have to go five on one. Invite the one and go one on one. Invite them to have, you know, a cup of coffee, water, game of chess, walk, game, whatever it is, and talk to them about this light. You're fully known by Christ and fully loved and fully paid for. That walking in the light, there's nothing better because you can see where you're going and you can see what you're doing and you can see that that's painful and that's painful. That's a lie and this is the truth and you want them to walk in that light. Or invite the one to the five. Invite them to a Bible study. Because this, this is the tension you're going to see that Israel just wants to hang out with themselves. And he's like, no, no, no. It's to all nations. Go. Talk to everyone, everywhere that he is the great light that shows you how to truly live and the best way to live and the only way to be with the Father through the Son, 
walking in the light. So he starts that imagery, lightness walking in. And how how does he first communicate? What's Jesus' first words in his first sermon here? Verse 17, it says that he preached, repent. Let's just stop there, repent. This Jesus' first sermon, you do you. You be you. If you're happy, I'm happy. Those are the first words of Jesus? No, I'm not making it up. Look in the text. What's the first word? Repent. First word, change. Change. You're in darkness. You need to come to the light. What you're doing is wrong. You got to think these are Assyrians. These are people running around in the dark. They're trying to offer a sacrifice to this God, hoping that they can have a baby. And they're trying to offer a sacrifice to this God so they can have rain so that the crops will grow. And they're trying to offer sacrifices to here so that their children won't get sick. And they're trying to, they're just running around, cutting themselves and offering things. And it's not working and it's not working. And Jesus says, you need to repent. You need to change. You're in the darkness. See, I think sometimes we, we, we fall in love with this Blonde hair, blue eyed, flowing hair, Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee, and little babies are kissing him and playing. And Jesus is just like, keep doing what you're doing, man. That's not what you see in the scripture, is it? First words change. You need to turn. Now, here, here's, here's the identification you have to come about is he, repentance just isn't turning away from sin and coming here, it's turning away from sin and turning towards Christ. It's a full turn. Away from sin and towards Christ. Saying, I'm not going to trust worldly things to be the medicine to my soul. I'm not going to rest on the accolades of my children or my job or my name or my bank account to find my value and identity. I'm not going to live for that purpose. I'm going to, I'm going to, whatever God wants to do, I'm going to follow him. He's my highest value, highest purpose. I'm going to follow because We're going to transition here in a minute from repent to follow, but it starts with repenting. Because if you're not repenting, you can't follow. You're walking the exact opposite way of Jesus. So any sermon, I want you to see this, sermon, because he's talking about preaching, should involve some type of changing to be like Christ, to be like Jesus, that he is the greatest. He's the promised one. He's the only savior, the only king, the only one, period. If it doesn't get there, it's just a really nice self-help talk. The text says he preached, doesn't it? When he preached, he preached change. Be like Christ, right? Repent, turn, follow. God is here. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. And then he comes down. What else is he preaching? It says he started going into the synagogues proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Well, what's the gospel? It's good news. Well, if there's good news, what does that mean? There's bad news. And this is the part of Christianity people want to divorce. I get more emails when I talk about hell than any other topic. Eric, you're brainwashing the children. I'm going to send you my counseling bill for talking about hell. You're manipulating them by by forcing them to think that there's some scary place that if they don't change, they can't go to. It's like, man, I, I feel the exact opposite. How unloving is it to not tell kids about hell? How loving is it to not warn them? I simply want you to think through this with me and just, just think through the implications. 
Because we don't like the idea of hell. We think it's not fair. Yeah, so let's, let's walk through some concepts really quick. We all sin, break God's law. We all deserve hell. The fact that any go to heaven is called grace and mercy. I'm like, well, then if he's going to have a heaven and hell, then why do he create it all? Well, then your option is just God doesn't create it all. Is that a better option? I don't think so, right? It's his prerogative, his creation. Like, oh, but pastor, it's a, it's a finite, meaning numbered, amount of sins and an eternal consequence. That's not fair. Well, guess what? It's an infinite reward on the other side. Infinite heaven, infinite hell. Infinite reward, infinite punishment. It's infinite on both sides. Now, let's walk through this. If everybody goes to heaven, there's no hell. Then what good news is Jesus bringing? Good news, everyone goes to heaven. We already knew that. Well, you should change and kind of act like me. Well, will it change me going to heaven? No. See me, I could do whatever I want and I can go to heaven. Yes, I already have the good news. I don't need you, Jesus. If there's nothing to pay for, there's no payment needed, nothing for heaven, everybody goes, then why does he go to the cross? The cross becomes unnecessary, doesn't it? He's going and dying and bleeding and he's broken, he's crucified, but everyone's going to heaven. So what is he paying for? Becomes extremely problematic, doesn't it? He's giving good news in light of the fact that there's bad news, that you have sinned and you're separated eternally from God the Father and you will be in hell, away from him, being punished eternally. Good news, Christ is gonna pay for you. He's gonna make a way for you to be with that Father, that God, that creator, eternally in heaven. You can't do it. He's saying, I am. That's the good news. But in order to receive this good news, you need to turn and you need to follow. You see, preaching involves these things. It's proclaiming God's plan being fulfilled from the beginning to the end. He said, I made a people. I will be their God and they will be my people. They rebel. There's no way to restore the relationship. He sends Christ to make a way. Some go to heaven, some don't. But the fact that any go makes it good news. True? Yeah. You have to think about that. He's saying there's good news because there's bad news. So he walks through this. You need to repent. You need to change. You need to turn. And then what does he say? You need to, lastly, follow. You need to follow Jesus. Now here's, here's the quick word I want you to catch. There's... There's an adjective right there that describes the following in verse 20. What is it? How do they follow? Or you say it's an adverb. How do they follow? Immediately. Immediately. What's our American culture with Christianity? Hey, man, you want to get in this Bible study? No, no. I'll do it later. I'm too busy. You going to pray? No, no, no. You ever thought about going on a mission? No, no. It's always, I'll do it later. I don't have enough time. How did the disciples do it? Immediately. Boom. Gone. And it's not like they were, you know, at lunch on a break. They're doing work. They're fishing. They're earning an income. Jesus says, hey, follow me. Boom, gone, go. They're like, that's, that's the Messiah. He, I need to follow him. He is shining light. People are turning from darkness. And now they're following. And the question we always have to keep asking is maybe, why am I following? Am I following for the benefits 
Or am I following because of the relationship? I want to be around him. I want that light to shine in every facet. I want it to change the innermost parts of me. I want it to change all the idols, all the things. I want to be so close and I want to follow. Everything that he might ask of me, I want to do. And so these disciples, they, they would know intimately what's the relationship between a rabbi and a student, a disciple and a teacher. Uh, in the Talmud, that's simply just like some commentary on the Old Testament from rabbis. They, they talk about this idea. It says, let your house be a meeting place for the rabbis. Now catch this. And cover yourself in the dust of their feet and drink in the words thirstily. Cover yourselves in the dust of their feet. The idea of following is that you would be so close that the very dust would cover you. And yet what do we see so often is we try to have this trust-follow relationship where he's way over there and we're way back here. He's like some random Facebook or Instagram page that we check in on and hit like, see if there's any coupons that might benefit us, and then we forget about it and go amongst our very way. And then what happens is the light, the ultimate light, becomes so far, we can't even see. We don't know where it goes. We're running into sin over and over and over because we're not following in a close, intimate way so that he can guide us and change us. See, this is what the disciples are signing up for. They want to walk so close that the very dust would fall on them. And what's fascinating about this, I want you to watch this progression as we walk through the book of Matthew. As, as they're following, they have it in their mind. Oh, he's going to restore Israel and, and we're going to be the king. I'm going to be on the right. I'm going to be on the left. And, he, and then he tells them to repent. He calls them Satan. And they're turning and they're turning and they're turning. And more and more and more, they just love being around Jesus. They want to be like Jesus. And then at the very end, after the resurrection, rises from the dead, he visits them and he sends them out. And what do they do? They go to the ends of the earth, proclaiming, being persecuted, dying, believing in Jesus. They die saying, there's nothing you could do to me that would cause me to give up that relationship. Because what are the benefits of the relationship? Suffering and persecution. I'd rather have Christ. Nothing can separate them from that love because they followed so intimately and so close. They're saying, man, there's nothing better than following Jesus. This is literally the greatest thing in all the world. I have him, a perfect king, a perfect savior. And what are some of the results of this following? He gives them new names. He says, hey, Simon, you're going to be named Peter, right? Gives them a new name. We get, what, a new name. We go from child of Satan, read Ephesians 2, child of wrath, child of God. You have a new name. You're now a Christian. And so you're not a father. You're a Christian father. You're not a mother. You're a Christian mother. You're not an employee. You're a Christian employee. It describes every facet of your life. The light is shining in your work, in your house, in your parenting in the community, everywhere you go, that Christian name goes first. It describes all the actions and, and all of the reactions you have. You get a new name. And here's the last part of this. It could cost you greatly. I want you to think about this for a second. You imagine Peter. I mean, he's fishing. 
He's earning a living, drops what he's doing, goes and follows Jesus. Peter's married, so what does he have to do? He has to go home and be like, honey, I quit my job. You did what? And what are you going to do? I'm going to fish for men. That's dumb. You fish for fish. What do you mean you're going to fish for men? He's like, I met Jesus. I'm never turning back. You think that conversation went a little maybe crazy, I would think. But it's at a high cost. This is what puts food in the mouth. This is what provides for the family. And Jesus said, go, I go, any cost, anything. And so this is where we really need to take a step back and really start to think. Am I prepared to follow Jesus in that way? Because that's ultimately where the light shines so bright is when we endure suffering, endure loss, and we say, I'd rather have the suffering and the loss and the pain than to give up Christ. It's where the light shines bright. It's where the world hides in darkness. And it says, I need this. It comforts me. I I need this. This medicine, it soothes me. It helps me forget. Even though I wake up in the morning and the pain's still there and the insecurity's still there, it's just that temporary satisfaction. If I go into the light, it'll be exposed, it'll be taken away. So to think, well, I, am I willing to follow him at any cost? Some things to think about. It's, it's kind of trending in Christianity right now. And I just say this to prepare you to really think through it. As I see parents, they love Jesus. They bring their kids to church and they follow. And then inevitably what happens? One of the kids says, I want to go transgender. I want to go same sex. I want to do drugs, you know, medicinally. I want to sleep with my partner. I want to be addicted to the substance. And all of a sudden, the parent stops following and they start following the kid. They start going, oh yeah, yeah, whatever you want, whatever you need, we just, just you still love us, right? Like you still need us, we're, we're still your favorite, right? They won't follow Jesus at that cost because they love their kids, they love their spouse, fill in your blank, more than they love Jesus. The following is contingent. And the second we start doing that, we're changing Christ. And when you change Christ, you change the good news, you change salvation, you change the gospel, you change Jesus. All these things work together. Jesus says marriage is this way. Jesus says parent this way. Jesus says don't lust. Jesus says don't hate. Jesus says forgive. We don't get to say, you know, no, but my kids are doing it or, or my friend is doing it or my family is doing it. So I'll just, I'll just ignore that part and follow them. See, ultimately, following Jesus is going to cost the disciples everything. And this is where you have to come back to that question. Do I love the benefit of Christ or do I love Christ himself? Because the benefit, what you see in the New Testament, is going to be suffering, pain, and hatred from the world. And you would say, for my Jesus, anything. Because the benefit is having, knowing, and following him. That's the benefit. Because I follow him closely, and I would, I would give up anything to follow him. That's the decision you see. And as the crowds come And the crowds come together, 25, and they follow. Some are looking for the benefit. That's why they keep saying, do another sign, do another miracle. And then you see others, they just fall and weep at the feet of Jesus. Oh man, that I would be loved 
a wretched sinner that you would love me, save me, die for me, pay for me. I just want to be with you. There's nothing greater. So the question you have to start asking is, why do I follow? Is the benefit really Christ or am I looking for, you know what, I put in the work. I shouldn't have this happen to me. My kids shouldn't act like that. My job shouldn't be this way. My health shouldn't be this way. I do the work. Where's the benefit? Because following Jesus is the benefit. It's the benefit. There's nothing greater. Side note, I want to step out. I want you to see this, that, that, that Jesus is healing people and he's doing a great work. But as we've followed the logic of Matthew, these miracles, what are they doing? They're authenticating the message and the messenger. It's not setting up a principle that if you're really a Christian, you can heal people. That's not what's being taught in the text. What's being taught in the text, walk it through Matthew 1. Resume, anointing, testing in the wilderness, power and authority, cast out demons, heal the blind, heal the sick, forgive sins. He is everything you need. The power, authority, resume, fully God, fully man, fully able to be the payment for your sins. Follow him completely. But what you're going to see over and over again, but I want this blessing over here. I want him to heal this. I want him to do this. What you're going to see is Jesus doesn't always heal everyone. He leaves towns and there's still sick people. He leaves towns and there's still people in distress. Why? Because the blessing is not pain being removed. The blessing is having Jesus to follow, to shine light on your life, to offer a payment for your sin, to be with him forever, and ever, and ever, and ever, to be rescued from the depths of hell and have an eternity with Jesus, to be fully known and fully loved. This is what it means to follow Jesus. You believe in being with him so much, there's nothing you wouldn't give up because he's that great. And so as we walk through the book of Matthew, it's a fantastic question to answer. And I encourage you to watch the disciples. Watch the disciples. They're just slowly shifting from, I want to be at the right hand. No, I want to be at the left hand to kill me, whatever. I won't deny him. I love him. The more they follow, the more they love, the more they love, the more they give up anything for Jesus. That has to be the heart of where we're at as a church. And this book of Matthew is here to encourage you. He's the king you've always needed. He's the king you've always wanted. But when you step into that light, it's going to be painful. It's going to, it's going to reveal some sin and it's going to scare you because you think that sin medicates you and it helps you and it validates you. But it's a lie. You need to repent from that turn and you need to confess it and know God loves you. These people here, they love you. Your sin is not too big for him. He loves you. Now follow him. Keep following, trusting, willing to give up more and more. So as the world sees us suffer, we say, but at least we have Jesus. That's when the light shines brightest. That's when the light shines brightest. Okay, some questions for us to think through. What are some areas where you fail to follow Jesus? Because we're getting ready to go into the Sermon on the Mount. And he's going to hit us right between the eyes. He's going to say, oh, you think you're not cheating because you're not physically touching? Well, you're lusting in your heart. You're an adulterer. Oh, you think you don't murder because you don't stab people? You have hate in your heart. You're a murderer. He's going to up the ante. 
It's going to get costly. Will we give these things up? Will we follow the direction he's giving? So it's good to start thinking, where does God ask me to follow? And I'm like, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Start thinking now. Start praying through that. Two, how quick is your response to drop what you're doing and do what Jesus asks of you? What does the text say? Immediately, immediately they go. Well, that doesn't mean they do it perfectly. They fail. But the immediate response is, that's Jesus. That's the king. That's the guy from the old. That's, that's the son of God. I need to go. So if God's asking you to share your face, pray with someone at work, tell your kids that they're sinful and they need to repent, tell your spouse, to tell, you know, your job, cut your addiction, whatever it is, are you being slow? Are you letting the darkness hang over you and lie to you? Allowing it to help you think, if no one will find out, no one will know, this will all get better. It'll all, no, it won't. It's going to leave you blind, beaten, and dead. You need the light of Christ. This is why immediately, immediately, turn, follow. Three, do you know of dark places that you are not going to share the light? Right? Are there unsaved people you know that are not, you're not sharing Jesus with? Now, I think sometimes we get like a weird conception. Like this is not like when you go to the football games and baseball games and there's some dude with like a mega horn and he's shouting at people. It's not what we're talking about with evangelism. We're not talking about you get at the, you get at the Thanksgiving table and there's like 20 people. And you're like, okay, who loves Jesus? Oh, you don't? Okay, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. Here's a chance. Who wants to repent? Glad we had Thanksgiving. It's not what it's getting at either. Okay? Are there people you know you can have a conversation with? Here's the funny thing. People aren't shocked when Christians talk about Christ. They're not like, oh my gosh, why would you talk about Jesus? You're a Christian. That makes no sense. Doesn't happen. What people are shocked by is when you condemn them and you tell them they're a terrible person. Instead of saying, hey, I was a sinner. I was saved by Jesus. I was shown the light. I was in darkness. He changed me. It's a better way. Like, where are you at with Jesus? I want you to know him. There's nothing better for you than knowing him. It can be that easy. Or when you look around your life, is it just Christians around Christians around Christians around Christians? Just light hanging out with light. There needs to be an element of darkness. You're going and sharing and proclaiming. You need to turn and follow. Four, what does this passage teach you about Jesus and the Bible? Hopefully it tells you about the Bible it's consistent, it's accurate, God keeps his promises. Think of this, they're, they're literally going to geographical areas that the Old Testament prophesied, predicted would happen. That's not just he said these words, he lived in these places. He lived in these places. Side note, think about this, the Jews had the Old Testament and they're missing that the Old Testament talks about Jesus, why? Because they wouldn't follow so close that the dust got on them. They wanted the benefits and not the relationship. They wanted the system to make them feel superior. Not the king-servant relationship. The Bible's there to shine light. To help us not run into walls and, and run into addictions. And, and to do things that are hurtful and painful. It's there to be our guiding light and our principle. Our unwavering compass. What does it teach you about Jesus? 
He's everything you need. He's the king God requires. He's obedient unto death. He has power and authority to do all things. And he models everything we need. And he goes to the cross, obediently doing the will of the Father. What a beautiful Savior. It's a king that knows you, loves you, pays for you, keeps you, sustains you, and then takes you to heaven. What does it teach you about Jesus? Then five, why is shining light into darkness in your own life sometimes painful, but overall better? Here's the lie. If I expose this sin, either one, people are going to hate me, or two, I'm going to lose the very thing that gives me a little bit of hope and a little bit of love and a little bit of courage just to make it through that day. In reality, it's killing you each day. And so the, the thing the Christian has to get right in their mind is it is so good when sin is exposed because it allows us to walk in the light. This is why people come weeping. The, the weight's finally off the shoulders. They, have to, they can stop hiding. They can stop being alone because darkness hides. It isolates. It, it, it isolates you from people. And someone actually touches you and says they love you and they're going to walk with you. That is powerful and it's what the light does. But the lie in darkness is, that's too painful. Don't do it, Christian. Don't do it. And so how can you begin to bring these things into the light, whether it's to your spouse or to a friend or to a pastor or a counselor and say, I need to confess this sin. I need to turn away from that sin. I need to turn towards him, follow him, and follow him completely to the ends of the earth, whatever the cost, because there's nothing greater than following Jesus. And when we sing that over and over and over in our lives, it shines a light so bright, all the world can see. Those Christians really believe there's nothing better than following Jesus. That's the anthem we want to sing, amen? Let's pray. God, we love you. We praise you. That you are a light shown in the darkness. That you show us the way. You show us the way to water that will never thirst. To food that satisfies our soul to love that doesn't end, to an identity that doesn't change, and to a Father that's perfect in every way. It's our prayer we would walk in light, that we would go and share the hope of heaven with all who don't know you. We would tell them of this great light, this marvelous light, this beautiful Jesus that has changed us, that we turned and followed and follow him still, and that there's nothing better, and we want them to know you in that way. We pray as we go into a time of worship that we would sing, we would sing loud because there's nothing better than loving and following Jesus. There's nothing better than having him as a savior, as a king. There's nothing better than being with him forever. And may we rejoice and sing till we can't sing anymore. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.